This is a reading of Romans 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of your, himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is great to see you. It's great to join with you this morning as we continue with our study of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. This is the second of our four teachings in a series that we've titled The Transformed Life. Now, if you're with us last Sunday, you know that we pushed pause on the transformed life uh, in order to experience a time of uh, student-led worship. And that was a, that was a fantastic service. Uh, our youth praise band led us through the worship time through our singing. Uh, we saw the summer recap videos. And then we heard some wonderful testimonies from our students of God moving uh, within, among them through the mission trips and the activities of the past few months. And all of the students who spoke, such genuine, heartfelt words, I know that they resonated with many of us who were here. I know they did with me. And there was one particularly that I was encouraged by uh, for some various reasons, but it was the overview of the Big Stuff Camp that our youth attended down in Panama City, Florida. And if you recall, one of our students, McKinley Campbell, shared with us the teaching theme of that week that they had down, in, down on the beach. And the theme for that week was the idea of filters, the way that we see and the way that we perceive and interact with these various areas of our life through these worldly filters or these godly filters. And as she was speaking, I had two thoughts. Number one, what an excellent teacher. I don't know if McKinley's in here or not, but keep using that gift. Thank you for sharing. That was a great overview. Secondly, what a great setup her testimony was for this week's message. See, if we go back to week one in the transformed life, we know that Pastor Betty shared with us from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, which we recited in our call to worship this morning. Paul's instruction that we not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Christ. He emphasized that in our pursuit of genuine faith, this transformation is not an option. It's absolutely necessary. Uh, it's highly desirable. It's something that we have to pursue. And when we are transformed in Christ, we begin to see the world around us from a brand new perspective. A perspective that is gained only through a godly, biblical, transformed filter. And this is going to be a filter that this morning we're going to refer to throughout our time together as a lens, or a lens of a changed heart, the way that we engage and interact and see the world around us, the lens of a changed heart. And our text this morning is going to come from Romans 12, 3 through 8. Uh, we're going to find the Apostle Paul finding, uh, providing for us three new perspectives, a perspective of ourself, a perspective of others, and a perspective of our gifts. But rather than continuing to emphasize the individual application of this transformation, 
Paul's going to now move us to the idea of transformed believers joining together in the body of Christ and thus forming the transformed church. A church that is uniquely different from the world around her and is amazingly powerful in message and deed. And so that's our objective this morning, to discover, embrace, and firmly affix the lens of a changed heart so that we might view these three perspectives, ourself, others, and our gifts, in accordance to a renewed mind in Christ and in conjunction with His church. And I think probably the best thing to do right now, since I've already said the word transformed at least a dozen times, is to make sure that we're all on the same page as to its meaning. And you know, the the basic definition of transformation is that it is a change from the inside out resulting in something radically different. It might help to know that Paul uses the Greek word when he says transformed from which we get the English word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, like a caterpillar to a butterfly, something radically different. And so in our context, for our purposes, transformation is the process of our being radically changed through the heart and mind into someone whose daily walk is readily identified as a Christ follower, to be transformed. And this is going to continue to be an important definition for the next several weeks. So I'd encourage us to sort of keep that in mind. And then one last thing. Before we dig in, I've got to come clean with you. I got a lot of heads looking up on that, didn't I? In the spirit of full disclosure, I want to share a secret with you uh, that I hope will provide a helpful illustration to our topic. I had a birthday a few days ago. At, well, <laughs> that's not a secret, but thank you. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Well, and with it, my daughters were all too eager to remind me that I was almost an antique. Almost. So if you do the math and you know antiques, you know where I fall. Almost an antique, to which I was quick to remind them that antiques are often highly valued, desirable for their age and their beauty and their rarity. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, needless to say, this almost antiques age, I think, is catching up with this last birthday. And since the last time I was before you in early July, I've had a significant change in my eyesight. So I had quite a dilemma this morning. With my contact lenses in, I could see each of you very clearly. With my contact lenses in, I couldn't see a word of my notes. With my contact lenses out, my my notes look perfectly fine. You guys look like a big blur. (laughs) Optically speaking, of course. Well, as I'm not nearly as talented as Pastor Beatty with the, the reading glasses, I had to make a choice. And so I stand before you right now without a clue of who else is in this room. (laughs) However, if I put these on, oh, that's much better. You guys look so much better looking than a blur. That's great. From the farthest corner, that's fantastic, Tim, back here. And back here in the back, absolutely. And so the point to this, other... Uh, aside from alerting the front row of my limited vision to the extent of the stage edge here and uh, hoping that you'll soften my fall. The point is that our ability to see ourselves as God sees us 
and to see the created image of God in others that God sees in others, it can be just as drastic a change as my having the ability to clearly identify each and every one of you or being totally uh, unable to identify a single one of you. But here's the good news, and this is the overarching theme to the entire message. Just like this pair of glasses, the lens of a changed heart is available and accessible to all of us. The ability to properly view ourselves and others and our gifts is not out of reach. It's all provided for us. But the greatest challenges, the greatest challenges to this are one, in recognition of our need for a changed heart, and in two, consistently utilizing the right lens. And so today, may Paul's words encourage us in both of these as we begin. Romans 12, verses 3. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See, Paul tells us that transformed believers in right relationship to a transformed church will apply the lens of a changed heart to how we view ourselves. The result will be biblical humility. You know, if we were to take the first part of this verse in the most literal of translations, it would read something like, I say to everyone, do not super think of yourself. Do not overly think of yourself. Paul was speaking to the tendency that we have to think more highly of ourselves than we should. We all know what he's talking about, right? In ourselves, in others. We call that the sin of pride. Thinking in such an egocentric way not only hampers transformation, but it's often the evidence of our conforming to the world. Where pride can sometimes be an advantage. It can be a badge of honor. It can be an indication of our varied forms of idol worship. When we think about our social status or our life on social media, whatever it may be. So Paul says, because of that tendency, listen church, don't be prideful. For the Lord's church to be the most effective and most obedient, each of you must live a life marked by humility. A church comprised of humble servants is a humble church. And Paul, had he been privy to the entire canon of Scripture that we have with our Bible, he might also have pointed the Roman believers to the Beatitudes in chapter 5 of Matthew, where humility is said to be the most fundamental posture of a believer's heart. Or he might have turned to Mark's Gospel where Jesus teaches and says that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve in all humility. Or to the book of Proverbs where it reads, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Or maybe he would have been reminded of his own letter to the church at Philippi where he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others greater than yourselves. Modeling Jesus who has humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we get the point, right? God's word and his son has a lot to say about humility. In fact, if you've heard the saying, pride cometh before the fall, have you ever heard that? I think the Bible makes clear that humility cometh before transformation, and so Paul will go on to instruct. He'll say, do not overly think this way in super thought, but think this way 
think of yourselves with sober thought or with sober judgment. In other words, make sure that you have a realistic view of who you are at your core and who you would be without the grace of God. Sober thinking reminds us that the only boasting is in the gospel message and not in ourselves. And so, not think super highly. Think soberly. And we may be sitting here right now, you might be thinking, whoa, I don't, I don't want to cross that line. You know, I, how do I know the difference between a healthy self-image and thinking too highly of myself? Uh, between personal confidence and the sin of pride. Well, let me just give you some examples, maybe to reassure you, uh, maybe help further this point. If you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, gosh, I am so proud of my daughter for her achievement last night. That makes me such a proud parent. Or maybe something like, you know, it gave me a great sense of pride to represent you with the volunteers at the annual meeting. Or, or maybe even, I am really proud of the way I endured that 5K yesterday. I trusted that plan and I can't believe how good it's made me feel. Anything along those lines, if you sort of get what we're getting at. I'd suggest that you're in no way exhibiting a sense of pride. If you happen to be sitting here thinking, wow, I am way more faithful than that other guy in my small group. Although I don't know what he does with the rest of his week, I know he doesn't do near as much as I do. I am of so much greater value to God because of, fill in the blank, my nationality, my language, my career, my service, or anything else. Then yes, by Paul's account and the account of all Scripture, I would suggest that there's likely a problem with pride and lack of humility that, importantly, is a great barrier for you in experiencing a transformed life. But if that's you, struggling with pride this morning and you're earnestly seeking to break its hold on your heart, Paul next tells us how to make that happen. See, he finishes this entire thought by writing that we do this according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We have sober judgment of, according to the measure of faith God has designed. And we have two ways that Paul may be telling us here how we do this. One is, is Paul saying that more faith, maturity in our faith, allows us to be a better judge of ourselves? Yeah, probably. In and of itself, that's, that's a good truth. You know, as we grow in our faith, we become more discerning. Uh, we become more intentional. And that might, that might be what Paul has in mind. But I'd suggest there's something else. See, many contemporary commentators have been looking over this word for measure and measure of faith. And they're discovering that often, most often, that the idea of measure was translated as the idea of a standard or a standard of faith in the original language. And so, in other words, Paul is saying to have sober judgment according to the standard of faith that God has assigned. The standard of faith. What or who is the standard of faith assigned by God? Well, it's His Son. It's Jesus. He's our standard. He's the only one we're to compare ourselves against in order to gain sober judgment. When we're tempted to say, well, I'm more faithful than that guy in my small group, Jesus says, well, compare yourself to me. Think about it. How difficult is it to walk around with an overly inflated ego when we consider Christ our standard? 
But unlike comparing ourselves to standards, this is the beauty of it. Unlike comparing ourselves to other standards, when we fall short to this measure, to Jesus, we should never be taken over by discouragement or self-degradation. But rather, it should lead us to an acknowledgement of our pride and an unquenchable desire to serve God in a way that no glory is ever due us and all glory is due Him. And in that, we see ourselves through the lens of a changed heart. Well, next, Paul provides us, he tells us what to do with this humility and this understanding of ourself. He provides us the most important characteristic of a transformed church. Verses 4 and 5, he writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Transformed believers in right relationship to a transformed church will apply the lens of a changed heart to how we view others. The result will be biblical unity. If humility is the first great mark of a genuine follower of Christ, then unity is the first great mark of a genuine church. There are many members, local, global, past, present, future, and they, we, are uniquely united in Christ. And it's, it's important that we observe and we note here that Paul transitions this thought. He uses this four as, and he links verse 3, where he's telling us about ourselves with verse 4, where he tells us how we're in relationship with others. And, and that as, in linking it, we almost read something like, in other words, as we begin to think rightly of ourselves with Christ as our standard, we will be able to think rightly of others and our relationship to them in Christ. And so to make his point, Paul uses this analogy of a human body. A body has many parts, distinctly different functions, yet when they all function according to their own purpose, we experience the full potential of the body's design and the body's purpose. Paul says that's the beauty of the church. A church body united in Christ. Many members, different functions, unique gifts, one purpose. And it's important to understand that Paul is not simply using body unity as an illustration of worldly camaraderie. Right? He's, not, he's not suggesting that it's good enough that we all just be a closer-knit, kumbaya, one-for-all, all-for-one community. There's something so much more going on here, so much greater and deeper here. It's, it's, it's the unity in the body of Christ and one of another that is a reality of Scripture and not just an analogy. There's, there's a bit of a mystery when we think about our unity in Christ as His church. But it's a reality nonetheless. It begins a few chapters back with Paul when he affirms that salvation comes to us when we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and we believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead. And at that moment, when we do that genuinely, that moment, we are received into the same body. The same body. We are partakers of the same nature. According to the Apostle Peter, he writes about this. He says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, united in the same nature. 
at that moment, we are grafted into one unifying source. As Jesus teaches in John's Gospel, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, apart from being unified through this source, you can do nothing. This is a really important theological idea of being in Christ when we think about the church. Uh, it's, it's about being one body with all believers. And the better we grasp it, the more urgent we become in our pursuit of achieving it, of moving toward it. And perhaps the very best example, the last example I share on this, this area, is one of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Note, don't just listen, note the specific language that Jesus uses. He prays for us that they, that we, believers, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that they may be even one as we are one in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. That's a powerful, powerful prayer. As we come together with humble hearts, we desire oneness. Why? So that the world may better know and love our Lord. Now, unfortunately, against this backdrop of Jesus' priestly prayer, for almost 2,000 years, the church has often missed this mark. And there's many reasons to this sad history of divisiveness and disunity in the church. But I think there's one area that we can humbly approach this morning through the lens of a changed heart, and perhaps it might enable us some progress in our appreciation of one body, many members. I think it's the need that we, we have in recalibrating our understanding of the church. Let me ask you, just to think about, what is the church? What is the church? Think for just a moment how you might would answer that. I'd like to suggest that one of the most fundamental principles in understanding the church is the acknowledgement that the church is a God-created, kingdom-living organism. It is not a human-created, earthly organization. The church is not a building or a type of facility. It is not an incorporated institution or a civic club or even a denomination. It is not something we go to. It's something we belong to. By the grace of God. In fact, the word for church in the New Testament is a word, uh, ecclesia. Ecclesia literally meant an assembly or a gathering that has been specifically called out, that looks different from anything else around it. So the church is the gathering of all God's people, both in the physical presence, local presence, and the spiritual belonging globally throughout time as one assembly. And what happens, the reason I think this is important, is what happens is when we dismiss the universal, spiritual, or what's sometimes referred to as the invisible nature of the church, uh, the church as one with redeemed believers, again, of all places and all times, is that we begin to see the church in very unhealthy ways. We begin to see the church as my church, or our church, or certainly not their church, and when we begin to impose unbiblical parameters on the composition of God's church, 
we begin to deal in the idea of total acceptance and unacceptance of God's people who are united in her. It can make us think, well, you know what? Paul's teaching in Romans 12, that's not so difficult. I mean, look around me. I can humble myself here. I like these people. They look like me. They think like me. They talk like me. I've got this humility and unity thing down. And even though I'm certain that God cares greatly and will continue to care greatly about the unique kingdom purpose of His church at River Oaks to include our local unity, He cares more about our willingness to become perfectly one with His many-membered assembly. Why? So that the world may know Him and love Him better. Now we've been unfortunately reminded with the events and the conversations of the past few weeks, which Wes prayed for earlier, of those who would mock God and His call for unity within the body. It's been a reminder that for centuries, many have claimed the light of Christ while harboring the darkness of Satan and the evil of twisted racial ideologies. Without question, anyone who takes the name of Christian yet deals in racism of any kind, is someone who is at best sorely deceived. John writes, if you hate a brother or a sister, you're a liar or a murderer, and no such person has eternal life. Or is at worst a severe detriment to the cause of Christ in our world. It is absolutely, categorically, unconditionally inconsistent with both the teaching of God's Word and the attributes of God Himself. A transformed church like the members of a body, will never prosper, nor should she ever tolerate the slightest bias, prejudice, or hatred toward others. And so thinking through this thought and thinking through these these past few weeks, I gravitated to a passage of Scripture that's sort of the go-to often when we talk about race reconciliation or we talk about the global church. And that's the, uh, the passage in the book of Revelation where we see all nations, tongues, tribes around the throne, eternal worship. And that's a wonderful vision, it's a wonderful picture, it's a wonderful go-to verse. But I think we need something that's more present. I think we need something that's more earthly. I think we need a word of encouragement that is a reminder of the gathering and the opportunity we have today in this journey. And I think we find that in Acts chapter 2. See, at the, the day of Pentecost, the forming of His church by His Spirit, There is an intentionality that Luke has when he is inspired to share with us a list of all who had received the gospel that day. All who remained engaged in discipleship and fellowship and the breaking of bread together. He writes for us that it was the Parthians and the Medes, the Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the very first new members class. How awesome. God's church with whom all of us who profess Jesus as Lord have become eternally united. And so the bottom line, God's global assembly of believers, His church is most transformed when we recognize, embrace, and speak to the equal value of her members. 
In that way, we see others through the lens of a changed heart. And then finally, verses 6-8, through eight, and a notice of time here, we're going we're to be brief in this final comment here, in this final pass, passage. But in 6-8, through eight, Paul writes, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, and the one who contributes in generosity, who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Transformed believers in right relationship to a transformed church will apply the lens of a changed heart to how we view our gifts, and the result will be biblical ministry. Paul's walked us through the progression of how God's church is to serve. It begins with individual humility, which moves us to a place of body unity and culminates with widespread ministry through the utilization of our particular gifts. And there's two points. One, we are to find our gift and use it. Paul doesn't say if you have a gift or when you feel like using your gift. Paul says that each member of a God-given ministry gift Service, teaching, mercy. And this isn't all, all encompassing. We have other lists throughout Scripture that Paul provides as well of spiritual gifts that we're to use. Uh, but these are examples. And he says, intentionally seek them out and let us use them to their fullest. To their fullest. The second point in using our gifts is the caution for us not to see our gifts in an extremely narrow perspective. We're not called to create silos of ministry. So using our gifts is a starting point. Uh, if, if teaching is your gift of ministry, then please don't hear Paul saying that you don't have the gift of helping set up tables and chairs for food trucks Sunday. Because you don't have the gift of setting up. Paul would say, rather, while you are helping set up tables and chairs for food trucks Sunday, imagine how you might use your gift of teaching in that moment. That's the intentionality of our gifts being used to their fullest. And in that, we see our gifts through the lens of a changed heart. Ourself, others, and our gifts. Well, in conclusion, I'd like to leave you with a glimpse of the possibilities for a transformed church in today's world. We'll do that by inviting you to join me on a bit of time travel. Okay, so... With the, the Marty McFly control dials set for the window of time, history between AD 100 and AD 300, we arrive to find that Paul's letter to the Roman church has been widely circulated and is fresh on the mind of believers. In an age of extraordinary expansion of Christianity, we find that the local churches are multiplying at a tremendous rate. Geography is no longer a barrier to sharing the gospel. And through the aid of the Holy Spirit and the faith of transformed believers, these early century churches are prospering against unimaginable odds. In a world that is especially hostile, in reality of certain persecution, the Christian church is thriving. And we look at that and we observe that and we say, how is that possible? This makes no sense. And we know that God is at work. And we know that all things are possible according to His will, but we also know that God has a tendency to work through the hearts and the hands of His people, the church. And so we are left to ask, how are the followers of Jesus overcoming this insurmountable resistance and the determination to exterminate them? 
Well, if we're asking that question, we can be sure that this question took up a great amount of time and energy throughout all the Roman provinces, where the government officials, the imperial cult authorities, the pagan political and religious leaders were growing increasingly frustrated at not having an answer. One of the mightiest powers ever known can't stop the growth of a minority Christian church despite their every intention. So they're saying as well, what's going on? Well, the short of a very long but interesting story is that the adversaries of Christianity were actually more aware of what was going on than we give them credit. Of course, they didn't understand God's divine role, but they were certainly observing and they made known the strange behavior of the Christ followers. See, the emperor Julian, notoriously one of Christianity's worst enemies, he wrote to his council, the Christian faith has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. The Roman governor Pliny, writing to the emperor Trajan, these Christians love all and care little for their possessions. We love our possessions and we care little for all. The author Tertullian wrote, the Christians' deeds of love were so noble that the pagan world confesses in astonishment. See how they love one another. And the philosopher Aristides, they walk in humility and kindness and falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as if he were their own brother. Can that be said today? What they observed were men and women and children who lived life so radically different than the world around them, who devoted themselves to learning, loving, and living out the teachings of Jesus and these letters of Paul, who desired to bring everyone into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting that those who seemingly would have the very most to lose throughout this course of time were actually some of the most faithful. In fact, J.D. Greer, the pastor over in Raleigh, I like what he says. The early church had no building, no money, and no political influence. And they turned the world upside down. And so the reality is this. As we return to the present and this window of history closes, in the early 4th century, the Emperor Constantine issues an edict. An edict that would now protect the church and make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And ever since, for almost 1,700 years, Christians have been much more safe, more comfortable, generally accepted, and often tied to governments and the powers of nations. It's not a stretch to say that during the same time, the church has lost much of her humility, her unity, and her willingness to minister. And to be clear, we would never wish or pray for a time of persecution. And we pray today for those who still experience that in pockets around the world. But I think that reflecting on this just for a moment can remind us of the wonderful opportunity we have to be different in our own society. And with it, an opportunity to embrace the increasing hostility towards Christians and discomfort that it creates. With the recognition that God works through His transformed church, He always has and He always will. In a world that's often proud, divided, and selfish, what could be the impact if God's global church 
were filled with individual transformed believers willing to live in a way that was humble, united, and on mission with their gifts. Not self-righteously, not angry or bitter, not lacking in biblical convictions, yet also not lacking in the compassion or the understanding that those without Christ will never share the same biblical convictions. What might be the impact? Maybe the world upside down? Well, may the lens of a changed heart bring us a renewed perspective of ourself, of others, and our gifts. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we near the conclusion of this corporate time of worship here in your church, we come before you, Lord, and we seek a mighty work in our lives in the days ahead. We ask for a spirit of humility, Lord, one that draws others to you and replaces any pride in our life that pushes others away. We ask for an awareness, Lord, of our participation in your church, that we strive for unity among all brothers and sisters in such a way that our love for one another is radically different than any other in this world. Lord, we know that the hate and the violence, bigotry is evidenced of a fallen world, but we pray, Lord, that you would extend great mercy on those for whom hatred is aimed and great conviction, Lord, for those who are living with such dark hearts. May your transformed heart, your transformed church, Lord, be a refuge, a beacon of light, and a model of grace and truth in this world, and may you receive all of the glory and the honor and the praise for it. We ask this in your name. Amen.